Hey, hey, I'm Rebecca. This is a podcast for all my single friends out there and for anyone who's ever been single. Cue the laughs, life lessons, and all things love. Welcome to Dating in the Bay. Now, let's get to it. Hey, hey, everybody. Happy Wednesday. I've been going through the metamorphosis of sorts where I've been selling all of my stuff. So I've gotten, basically, I've redone all of my living room and all of my bedroom with all new furniture. And it's been like a random, I didn't really see it coming. I just started, you know, one thing led to another. I got a new dresser, then I got a new side bed thing, and then I got a new coffee table. And then next thing you know, my whole apartment's completely changed. So now I'm like a little butterfly going to go out and just fly. So... I'm really excited because we have John Berger here today. He's an award-winning magazine writer, a contributor to Fortune, a dating expert, and he's the author of Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game. And I was going to take a question that I got and figured it was a good place to answer it here so that I could share the answer here more broadly. So somebody asked me, at what point do you consider yourself ghosted by somebody before a date? And so first I wrote back initially to this person and I said, hey, like I actually wouldn't call anybody ghosting. You have to actually meet the person first because ghosting implies like a rejection based on meeting you and going on a proper date. I don't think it's really fair to say it's ghosting when they haven't even had a chance to get to know you. The person went on and they're like, well, I'm just trying to figure out what I could have done wrong here. You know, rereading all the text back and forth because they had a plan and then the plan got pushed back a day and back and forth, back and forth. And at one point, yeah, the person said, I just don't know how I could have blown this. And to which I responded, of course you didn't blow this. Like there's nothing you could say that would ruin something that you didn't even have a chance to meet the person. And the reason that this resonated so much was because I was that person too back in the day where this would eat me alive. And I was very sensitive about all these things and would take it super personally. It's also easier as an outsider. Of course you didn't do anything wrong. Like you can torture yourself rereading all the messages over and over again. Usually when I find myself, if I'm ever doing that, where I'm just overanalyzing, I just delete the whole thread (laughs) from my text message history. So I just can't put yourself out of your own misery and just get it out of the way because you don't need to keep on circling. Round and round we go. It's not very fruitful and not a good use of your time. So basically my message to this person and to anybody who might be feeling like super nervous about, was I ghosted? Is this date happening? I would just say throw everybody a bone assume the good and if the person bails like that's on them you're good and you did everything you could you just can't take things personally as hard as that is and as much as like if you spend all of your waking hour taking everything so personally as somebody who used to do that it's a complete waste of time i probably lost a good year and got several gray hairs as a result of it so take my word for it you'll save some wrinkles and you'll save a lot of misguided time. The more you can just focus on, okay, this person is a flake. Next, I need to fill a slot for a date. So who's going to go out with me and then find a fun person to go grab a drink with? Like super chill, no frills, building somebody up to be this amazing person. I also have been known to do that as well. And putting people on pedestals doesn't work. And I think that it's super common when you're really excited for a date, it can be a lot down, but also knowing like this is a stranger, I don't know anything about them. Looking at their behavior and less of like what you want them to be, that's a game changer. Feel free to send me any DMs on these sorts of questions. I like answering them and hopefully they're helpful to you as well. And with that, enjoy my conversation with John. 
John, welcome to the podcast. I'm super thrilled that you're here. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. I'm excited to chat with you about my new favorite book. I'm glad it's your new favorite book. And you can hear me clearly, right? Yes, very clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm so glad you enjoyed making room. So I know you started as an oil and gas journalist. <laughs> yeah. You want, you want to hear the odd story of how a Fortune magazine writer ends up writing books about dating? Yes, please. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I was a, a senior writer at Fortune for five, six years, and I was at Money Magazine before that. And at least at Fortune, I couldn't help but notice that even though the editorial staff was mostly women, not mostly, but slightly you know, more women than men, I kept noticing that all the men were either married like myself or involved in long-term relationships. Whereas the women at Fortune magazine, I think I can safely say that they had more going for them dating-wise, and yet they were disproportionately single. And a lot of them were like very unhappily single. And the ones I was friends with had these dating stories and dating histories that really made no sense to me as a guy who got married in my mid-20s. Like I, I couldn't figure out basically why dating should be so much harder for women than it is for men. And that's what led to the first book, Datanomics. And Datanomics wasn't really an advice book. It was more pop science. It kind of explored this this phenomenon that we're all familiar with, which is, you know, fabulous women in their late 20s, 30s, and 40s who can't seem to find a guy. And it it makes no sense. And their moms and their hairdressers and their grandmothers have all sorts of useless advice for them about all the things they're doing wrong. Yet guys who don't have that much going for them don't seem to have any of these problems. Okay, so so why is that? So the big takeaway from Datanomics, the first book, it looks at how lopsided gender ratios among college graduates have spilled over into post-college dating. So for the past 30 years, we've had about one-third more women than men graduate from college in the United States. And it's not just the U.S., it's basically every Western country. Women have been kind of outshining, outpassing men when it comes to higher education. And now, obviously, this wouldn't matter if we were all more open-minded about whom we date and marry. But at the same time that these college gender ratios have been skewing female, there's been kind of a simultaneous increase in what academics referred to as assortative mating, which is just a fancy way of saying that college grads really only want to date and marry other college grads. So what we've wound up with is a kind of a college grad or white collar dating pool that has one third too many women and a blue collar dating pool that has too many men. And Datanomics explored not only the statistical problem, but there's actually been a lot of research done on how lopsided sex ratios impact behavior. And a big takeaway from Datanomics was that the rise of the hookup culture really has nothing to do with porn or Facebook or anything else that like modern scolds like to blame. It's largely related to this lopsided sex ratio among white collar people in which men are scarce and women uh, and women are kind of an overabundance. And the research on sex ratios shows that when you have that kind of a situation, the dating culture becomes looser and less monogamous. Oh, lots of doozy. 
Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, so, well, actually, that's that's a perfect segue. <laughs> well, actually, well, 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 see, give me your takeaway on that, and then I can I can segue to the new book. I mean, yeah, that pretty much reflects what I've seen the lopsidedness where like all my friends are pretty much catches. We all, you know, kind of like, we always look at each other. We're like, how are we all single? This makes no sense. You have married friends and moms and grandmothers who think you're morons, right? Yeah. They think, oh, you must be really, you must really suck at dating, right? (laughs) It's just like a, a very interesting phenomenon because I know you will get into this more, but you have come around to thinking that dating apps are probably not the best solution, which is interesting in like the COVID times because we're super reliant on that right. now. But just thinking about what you were just saying, I'm going to fast forward to something else that I had on my list. You talk about how like statistically, the longer that you're dating, it just gets worse and worse. So coupled with what you just talked about, how it's already <laughs> really bad, let's just go to doomsday scenario. Well, 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 Rebecca, did you ever play musical chairs as a kid? Yes. Yes. Okay. So you may remember in the first round of musical chairs, when there's like 25 players and 24 chairs, like only the kid who's chasing butterflies or something doesn't get a chair in the first round of musical chairs, right? Yeah. But by the last round of musical chairs, when there's two players and one chair, you have a 50% chance of losing the game. And there's something similar going on in dating in which, uh, at least among college-educated people, in which you start out, for at least among millennials and Gen Z, you start out among heterosingles. You start out with a dating pool of about 40, you know, let's say 40 women to 30 men. And that's a four to three ratio. Once half of those women get married, once, once 20 of the women get married to 20 of the men, the ratio among the remaining singles becomes 20 women to 10 men, or two to one. Once five more couples pair off, it becomes 15 to five, or three to one. So you end up with a scenario in which the longer you remain single, the harder it becomes for for the sex that's in the majority. And that's, I think that's what you're asking about, right? This, This problem of like, why is it that all the single women I know who are in their in their 40s are the most spectacular people in the world and they can't we're, find a date? We're in our 30s. Let's... Or, or 40, yeah, no, no, yeah. I, I mean, I'm older than you, so I, 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 know, I know a lot of a lot of women in their 40s and, yeah. And who, yeah, I mean, just, I, I mean, I'm, I'm 52 and I have a couple friends from college who it's baffling to them, baffling to their friends and family why this should be so hard for them. Well, and that just reminds me too, you know how it's when a guy typically is over 40 and not married, there's this kind of assumption that, oh, he couldn't settle down, like what's kind of wrong with him. But then for women, there's a different kind of connotation. It's like two ships in the night, it feels like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the, I have my own opinion on this. I'm not sure what the the societal perception is. But to me, at least, and you can tell me as a single woman, to me, at least, a guy who has his stuff together, decent looking, good job, and he's never married into his 40s, I mean, that's a huge red flag. I mean, a woman who's never married into her 40s, I think in a likelihood she's dealing with all the stuff that we were talking about mm-hmm. of, a, of a dating market that is incredibly unfair to educated women. Whereas the guys, I think, 
I mean, the longer they remain single, the better it becomes for them. And I think some of these guys get so warped, so to speak, that I actually think they may be unmarriageable. Whoa. Yeah, maybe that's an exact. I'm, I'm trying to. I'm trying to create a headline for you. I mean, yeah, that's a good headline. Not all of them, but but just but just in your own life experience, compare the women you know who are in their let's say late 30s and and never married to the guys who are late 30s. Which of them seem more ready to settle down? We have all our stuff together. Right, We're like past ready to go. Yep, that's my my thought, but. You know, I mean, your your initial reaction to the kind of the thesis behind datanomics and like, it, you know, these weren't your words exactly, but it sounded like you you were thinking, oh, that sounds depressing. Is that, yeah. Is that yeah, yeah. yeah, I think I used I think I used the word doozy. Yeah. Um, so when I was writing datanomics, I didn't think of it that way. I mean, I thought I was kind of writing Moneyball, but for <laughs> for dating. And I thought I was like explaining this curious phenomenon. And in my mind, when I was writing the book, the whole knowledge is power thing would, would be enough. And that women who thought it was their fault, that things weren't working out for them, that they would feel better about the whole situation once you explained that this is kind of a structural problem in the dating market. But as I'm guessing, you could have told me, you know, <laughs> even before the book came out, that was not enough. And I got out on book tour with Datanomics and, you know, women would show up at my book events and say, okay, it is nice to know that this is not all in my head, but now tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And... I, I had this really snooty attitude towards the whole self-help genre when I was writing datanomics and I, I didn't want to be the love doctor. Like I, I mean, there's a tiny bit of advice in the first book, but basically my editor had to like twist my arm to throw in a chapter on solutions. You know, I, I was more interested in actually solving the boy problem in the, in our schools than I was the mm-hmm. dating problem for women. But I now realize that was foolish on my part and dating is not baseball and you know baseball is just a game and dating is deeply personal for many you know most people now and to write a book that kind of explained you know what was going on in the dating market without offering hope and solutions i think was a mistake and i'm trying to kind of write that mistake with make your move well this book definitely did just that because the part of the reason that I liked it so much was because, well, first of all, you initially debunked the whole biology aspect of men innately chase women and that women need to be passive and just wait around till things just come around to them, which I really appreciate because I never really bought into that. For myself, at least, that I've had way more success in dating when I'm choosing people that I want to go out with. Whenever people who just come up to me, it's like, well, I didn't choose you necessarily. But if I'm the one who's actively, oh, I want to go out with you. Like, I like you, something about you. Then I've had much higher rates of success. And it's way more fun and enjoyable. And that was the premise of your book. So that's why I was like, this is the best. (laughs) Yeah. In the book, I refer to it as suitor's advantage, essentially. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that if if you're the one who initiates the connection, I mean, at least you at least you have a shot with your first choice, you know, whether it's a man or a woman. Whereas if you're passively waiting for somebody to approach you, 
there's no guarantee that your first choice even knows that you like them because, mm-hmm. you know, particularly with guys nowadays, I mean, guys are, I would say, less assertive and a little more gun shy than previous generations of men. And I, I don't think this is all about Me Too. I think there was some cultural stuff going on even before Me Too. But I, I think guys are are more cautious, let's put it that way, than they used to be. And they're not going to assume just because a woman is nice to them that that means she has the hots for them. And so I think the, you know, when you were referring to ships passing in the night, I think there's a lot of that that goes on in dating in which she likes him he actually likes her, but has no idea that she thinks about him in the way that he, you know, like, like mm-hmm. they, they both like each other, but never end up dating because everybody is too, is too afraid to do anything. And I'm, I'm all about whether it's a man or a woman, I'm all about like embracing the awkwardness and mm-hmm. taking risks because, you know, we're, we're not shopping for a used car here. We're like looking for a life partner. So, so why would you kind of say, well, you know, if there's somebody you know that you'd be compatible with and you kind of have a feeling is the person you're supposed to be with, why would you kind of sit back and wait and wait and wait? Mm-hmm. And that reminds me too, I think you talk about how, I'm just going to keep going with this two ships in the night pair yeah. <laughs> theme. You talk about in the book how people who are flirting, like I think you said 70% people don't realize that they're being like an attempted flirt is being initiated by somebody else or something like crazy. Yeah. Um, and it's like that kind of, passiveness almost where it's like you need to just be direct and the more direct you are the better results you'll probably see yeah no i i listened i think it was your last podcast where you were talking about the body language expert oh yes and i have no doubt that those things that we do subconsciously are real but as i you know there's a study i show in the book which says that 70% of flirting is essentially lost on its intended target. I mean, Mm -hmm. human, human beings suck at recognizing when they're being flirted with. And this is why people who are really direct about, about expressing romantic attraction, I just think have this, this massive advantage over others who kind of sit back and wait and wait and wait. And it's not just in hetero dating. There's a, there's a young, young-ish screenwriter I've been working with a little bit on a project related to the first book. And she's, she's the same sex dater, let's put it that way. And she had this hilarious story about how her first girlfriend in college, they were sleeping in the same bed together for two months before one of them actually kissed the other. Oh, wow. So I think like there's a lot of like, everybody is so anxious about doing or saying the wrong thing or about ruining a friendship Mm -hmm. or about taking chances. And I really believe that for Gen Z, I feel like it's even worse that they, it's like a next, I mean, nobody likes vulnerability and awkwardness, right? I really feel like with, with very young daters nowadays, it's next level that they, they're so afraid of doing anything that's going to get them in trouble. That's going to be awkward that it's easier for them to try out a line with a stranger on Tinder than it is to ask somebody out who they know and like and have real chemistry with out on a date. And I'm, you know, big, as you know from the book, a big goal of mine is to kind of push back against this fear of, of 
awkwardness, this fear of vulnerability. I mean, I I want people to embrace the vulnerability Mm -hmm. because that's how things get real. Yeah, no, I definitely, I like that a lot. For instance, at my old job, when we were allowed to go into offices and everything, on my lunch break, I would give myself challenges where I would write my name on a piece of paper with my phone number at lunch. All right, every once a day, I'm going to give out my number to a stranger who I think is good looking on the street. And I would, that's how I would get most of my dates, was just from going up to random people on my lunch break and being like, hey, I'm Rebecca. <laughs> What's your name? You would actually be an excellent matchmaker because that's how they get their clients. They just oh, really? go up to strangers and say, <laughs> I, I have somebody for you. <laughs> yeah, but it's me. I'm matchmaking for myself. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I think once getting over that hurdle of like, like you're saying, nothing bad happens. You don't have to be on Tinder to experience those. I mean, things. I think what you just described is going to work for some people, maybe like yourself, but I think, I'm not sure it would work for everyone because not everybody is, is kind of wired to. I'm not wired. Up. I'm not wired by this like but you have the guts to do it which makes you different than other people I would say yeah but I I I mean I definitely like was pushing myself a lot to do it and then it became much easier let me just throw something out there and see if it resonates with you okay I have a friend who's a English professor at Rollins College in Florida it's kind of a small liberal arts school and they have a required class for graduating seniors, which is basically like life skills 101. It's like everything from financial planning to career advice to relationships, basically all these kind of adulting skills that that people need once they they leave college. And this professor had read an advanced review copy of, of Make Your Move. And she was interested in the online dating stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about Mm -hmm. shortly about why I don't like online dating. And I, and I went through this, you know, over 45 minutes or so with the class, we were on zoom explaining why I don't like online dating. And at the end of the class, a young woman, you know, raised her hand and said, well, well, I have a question. Um, I hear what you're saying, but if I'm not going to meet somebody on the apps, how am I supposed to meet somebody? So uh, I said, okay, I'm going to put you guys into Brady Bunch mode on on Zoom. So I had like 30 kids in the class, 30 boxes on the screen. And I said, okay, I'd like a a show of hands. And the question I asked them was, how many of you have somebody that you know from the real world, somebody you know and like, somebody you're attracted to, and somebody who's single? uh, How many of you have that kind of a person whom you've ever wondered about dating? 30 kids in the class. 30 hands went up. And I ask this question all the time. And it's, it's you know, I the hit rate is going to be higher with 22-year-olds than with 62-year-olds. And mm-hmm. I, I get that. But I would say in asking this question a lot, I'd say about 70% of the people say yes. So my, my takeaway is if there's already somebody you know and like from the real world who's single and whom you're, you're attracted to, why would you start from zero with a complete stranger on a dating app when this person already exists and you could just ask them out on a date? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the low-hanging fruit is to ask that person who you already know. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. But I also think like, as you know from the book, I, I believe that the ways we meet are important. Like you could have, did you watch The Office or did you ever watch The Office? You know, not the TV too, show? Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. I have, I'm not like a... A gung-ho office person, but I've seen it. Okay. 
All right, but, but do you have a, a feel for yes. the Jim and Pam relationship? Yes, yes okay. I do. So if Jim and Pam met on Tinder, it would be like the most boring first date ever because they really, on paper, they have nothing in common. But they obviously had an immense amount in common in the real world because they had, you know, they, um, they had been in this environment together. They knew each other's senses of humor. They clearly their values were similar. And I really think that the way you meet can actually have a big outcome on on how the relationship works out. And my negativity towards online dating is tied into this. I mean, I, there's a woman I I interviewed for the book who she was a, a divorcee in her 40s. And she she described online dating to me as a doubter's game. And to me, this was a very clever turn of phrase. And the reason she said that is because she had had just, just so many experiences with online dating of men lying to her on dating apps, lying about their marital status, about whether they were actually looking for a relationship, about their jobs, their age, height, everything. So in order to protect herself, she kind of went into the into her first dates trying to poke holes in their stories, you know, like trying to figure out where the guys were lying to her. Um, and I understand why she was doing that, but that's obviously, that's not, that's not going to lead to a lot of second dates. I mean, if, if you're approaching a first date with that level of doubt and anxiety, that's not going to lead to falling in like or falling in love. Whereas if you actually know the person, whether whether it's a, a coworker, somebody from church, somebody you know from the dog park, maybe it's a friend of a friend. Even if it's of a friend of a friend, but you don't actually know the person, there's some accountability built into your your first date. So you know you're not going to be worried that my best friend's cousin is a married axe murderer <laughs> who's you know like you like the, right. I, I, I mean, there's. Add, I have to add that to my yeah. list of anxieties. <laughs> well, I mean, I. So many of the women I interviewed told me that their first dates on dating apps begin with basically an afternoon of fact-checking, like Googling the guy to make sure he is who he says he is. I mean, is, is this wow. sound familiar? Like the, no, I don't, I don't Google anybody. You don't, all right. Well, um, <laughs> you, you may be more, um, more, <laughs> more trusting. Um, and then the second step is creating kind of a safety plan telling your friends where you're going to be. You're going to be at Sushi Palace from 7.30 and check in with me or if you don't hear from me. And I understand exactly why this happens. I mean, there was, there was a Pew Research study that came out last year that showed that 20% of women on dating apps have been threatened with physical violence. I mean, if there was a singles bar where one out of every five women were being threatened with violence. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think a lot of people would be going back there. So I'm not like criticizing women for creating these escape plans and these, these safety plans and for making sure that Robert, the fund manager, isn't actually Billy Bob, the Mm ex-con. But my point is merely, it makes it harder to to feel a a strong connection on a first date if you have this anxiety level going in. Yeah, no, I I definitely appreciate that. And I think on top of all of that, you have the gamified nature of apps where people are always swiping to find someone better. They go home from a date and then they go home to swipe again. And it's that kind of, that psychology that they get you in, it's like not to actually create a long lasting relationship, even though they have really good marketing, but sometimes 
will tell us otherwise. Like I don't always, I don't really subscribe to the belief that they're looking out for the best interest of the singles who are, you know, on the app per se. Yeah, no. And also, I mean, I would argue, and I'm sure there are people in the industry that will give me pushback, but I would actually argue this is the, this is the design Mm -hmm. and business model of the online dating operators. I mean, if you, as I said before, I'm a, I'm a financial journalist, a Fortune magazine writer by background. So, you know, I'm writing a dating book. I'm going to read the, the annual financial report of Match Group, which is the largest dating app operator in the world. They own everything from Tinder to Hinge to Match, Plenty of Fish, OkCupid. I mean, they, they're the, you know, the giant company in the online dating world. And if you read the annual report of of Match Group, what becomes clear is that Match Group is a media company. And I used to work for one of the world's largest media companies, Time Warner. And I will tell you that media companies are not in the business of happily bidding farewell (laughs) to their subscribers and their viewers. The goal of Match Group is not your happily ever after. Their goal is to turn you into a lifelong shopper. And they, they really, they admit as much in, the annual, in their annual report. There's a line in there, which I quote in the book, you know, I don't have it in front of me, but I think this is exact. I think they, they say that successful experiences drive repeat usage. What does that tell you? I mean, that, that tells me that if you meet somebody great on Tinder, you're going to be going back to Tinder to find somebody even more great, which is what you were alluding mm-hmm. to before, right? Yeah, they don't want us to get off the app. They want us to keep being on it. Of course not. I mean, and I don't, like, from a business standpoint, I don't blame them because, you know, they, I mean, Tinder makes money up advertising. And the way you make money up advertising is not by having fewer (laughs) people. (laughs) It's true. It's a good point. You talk a lot about how you're a big proponent of the office romance, but- I want to talk about that in the times of COVID since everything is remote. Like, I haven't met any of my coworkers because I started a new job remotely during COVID. So interesting, you know, that I'm not like talking out of my ass, so to speak. There, <laughs> there, there, there's a professor at Stanford University, Michael Rosenfeld, who if you Google him, you'll see he's a dating expert or he's an expert on kind of the sociology of dating and relationships. And if you Google him, he's often quoted saying very positive things about online dating. But if you go to the study he wrote on all this, um, buried in the appendix is, is table three. And table three, uh, you know, the, the headline is breakup rates not much influenced by how couples meet. Clearly, Michael Rosenfeld and I have a very different definition of not much, because mm-hmm. what he found is that couples who meet on, online have a one-year breakup rate of 16%. If you meet through family, it's 9%. If you meet through friends, it's 10%. Meet as neighbors, it's 8%. And then if you meet as coworkers, it's 6%. So one-year breakup rate for couples who meet online, 16%. Couples who meet as coworkers, 6%. And there have been other studies that show that the marriage rate for couples who meet at work is anywhere from 25 to 30%. And... I don't think you need to, you need to even be a relationship expert to understand why office romances work. And I think the reason is because you already know the other person. Mm-hmm. You've already like spent six months or a year with them and perhaps a, 
a high-stress setting. You know how they deal with difficult situations. You know how they treat other human beings. I mean, I guarantee you that a guy who is dishonest or cruel in a workplace is going to be dishonest and cruel in a relationship as well. Okay. So you kind of you can kind of see people nine to five or or longer. You can see what they're like in life. And I, I think by the you know the couples I interviewed for Make Your Move who had met at work, by the time they had their first date, they were like almost already halfway there because they already knew they were compatible long before the first date. Yeah, I actually remember texting my friend, she and her husband, they met at this other startup that I used to work at. And I texted her when I read the part in your book about how people who meet at work have a 30% more likelihood, like you're just saying. And she was like, where'd you read that? And then I sent her a screenshot of the book, of your book. (laughs) I just thought it was really interesting that I had no idea that that was like how common it was. I mean, that's the marriage rate for couples who meet at work, but... Mm -hmm. As you could probably guess, the percentage of couples who meet at work has been in sharp decline over the past 10 years. And that's, you can probably guess why, because it's, you know, they're, they're love employers that now have rules against workplace dating. You know, they, I think the Me Too movement, and I, I think I do believe a lot of this predated Me Too, but I think in the Me Too world, guys in particular are much more cautious about asking somebody out for drinks or a date or anything like that. So again, it's easier for them to try out a line with a stranger on Tinder Mm -hmm. than it is to ask out a friend at work, somebody who they know and like and are attracted to. So I do believe that the workplace is the best place to meet people. You know, I'm, I'm arguing, I'm trying, I'm pushing upstream here Mm -hmm. because I know that fewer couples are meeting at work. I just think they should. Yeah. I lived in DC for a bit and they wouldn't allow us to even be friends or date anybody at work. Like they had a very strict policy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was kind of crazy, especially because I then submitted my friend's resume to work there and then they hired her. And I was like, do they, they must know that I'm her friend because they hired her, but we're not allowed to be friends with anybody. But as we wrap up, I know you do a bunch of book clubs and talking to a lot of people. What's been the biggest surprise from the book that you didn't expect would be people would catch on to or resonate with? I mean, honestly, it's, I mean, I know we just talked about it, but it's the workplace dating thing. I mean, I think people, people are struggling with it because I think intuitively people know that, yeah, you know, you know, the coworker and you already have some chemistry with them, but particularly for young people nowadays, it's, it's increasingly verboten to even consider Mm -hmm. that. So, I mean, I think, I think that's one, um, I mean, the obvious one, I mean, I've just had a lot of pushback, you know, from people who, with the online dating stuff, I mean, particularly the Gen Z singles, really the only thing they know for a lot of them is online dating. So the notion that I'm going to tell them to do something completely different, Mm -hmm. there was a, a guy, he's actually a young doctor in Seattle who I know. And when I suggested the idea of, just talking to, or, you know, like basically flirting with or hitting on, on somebody at a bar or at a party at a wedding, he actually said, well, that would be creepy. And for him, meeting people online feels much safer because everybody knows why they're there. And I, and I, I get that. I, I just, you know, again, if you look at the, 
If you look at the breakup rates, they're higher for online dating. If you, there's another study which shows the marriage rates for couples who meet online are much, much lower than people who meet in the real world. So I'm, I'm not saying it's impossible to find your, your soulmate on a dating app. I worry that online dating these days is too much like shopping. It's too mm-hmm. much like commerce. And any good online shopper knows that if you don't like something, you can return it. And I feel like the same kind of consumerist mindset has infected dating because of the apps. Well, I like at least that your book offers alternative solutions. What's next for you? Is there going to be another dating book? I mean, I have a a ghostwriting project I'm doing now that has nothing to do with dating. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe there'll be another dating book, but I'm not not sure. The the honest answer is I don't know. I, I don't know. There'll be a third. We'll see. Stay tuned. Yes, stay tuned. I'll be waiting, <laughs> waiting in the wings. <laughs> you can always interview me. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been awesome. The time flew by. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. No problem. You can find me on my website, which is johnberger.com. On Twitter, I'm johnberger1. On Instagram, unfortunately, it's a little bit different. I'm john underscore burger1 <laughs> on Instagram. And one other thing I'll mention is I, um, if you do have a book club that's reading Make Your Move, I've partnered with a company called Book Yaya, which is kind of a platform for writers, to, or authors to connect with readers. So if you want to set up like a, I, I do these book club Q&As. So if you have a book club that wants to, or is reading Make Your Move or wants to read Make Your Move, can you know, we can set up one of these kind of virtual Q&As and you can get more information either on my website, johnberger.com or at bookyaya.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again. This was great. Great. Thanks, Rebecca. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed my chat with John. It was super interesting and hearing kind of just all the numbers and just the demographic breakdown of women and men dating on the apps and also just how many people I know who kind of beat all the odds. So I don't think that there's any rhyme or reason for any of these things. And as long as you put the work in, it's going to work out. I'm a firm believer in the energy and what you put out in the world. It will bring what you want. Whenever I'm looking for a penny, somehow I magically find a penny. And that's not just because I'm manifesting a penny. It's because I'm looking out for a penny and then I see a penny and I'm like, oh my gosh, nobody else was looking for a penny except for me. And then I grab a penny. So basically searching for pennies is just like dating apps. One other thing before we go is meeting people in real life. A bunch of people have DM'd me about this and this would be a great opportunity if you're going into next week listening to this you can take it upon as a challenge that you should swipe right on somebody in real life, AKA going up to them. And it's a pretty low pressure. You're basically just swiping right on that person. And then it's a hit or miss of whatever happens doesn't really matter. More of just, oh, I swiped right on somebody in the wild instead of being on your phone on an app because we're already on our phones so much the past year. I'm kind of over my phone and my battery is also over my phone or my phone's over my battery. With that, Thank you to StudioPod for producing my podcast. Thanks to John Berger for joining me today. Thank you for listening. Thanks to my cat who's been quiet the whole time. Big shout out to Buster. He's really held it together. And I'll see you guys next week. See ya. See ya.